is an important video to play off the top so that you get an understanding of, of what VOM does. I, I know probably some of you are familiar with our mission, and so um, that information will be, um, uh, you would have known that already, but it's always good to remember and see uh, what we're doing and how we're helping persecuted Christians today, the history of VOM. If you uh, don't know about us, uh, we do have a newsletter that comes out uh, monthly, comes absolutely free, but it is our way to inform Canadian Christians on the sufferings of their brothers and sisters around the world and how they can pray for them. And so we always encourage people to get a newsletter. It's one of the very first things our founder did when he came out of Romania, came to the freedom of the West. He wrote a newsletter. It didn't look like this. It was much simple back then. It was just a type page on both sides, and he would give that to everybody, mail it to everybody who wanted it. But from that grew this newsletter, and it still captures the same heart, telling stories of our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering because it's the same thing we believe in. We believe in Jesus. We believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We seek to live that out. Our brothers and sisters around the world are trying to do that as well and face persecution as a result. So if you want to know more, please sign up for our newsletter. You can do that today. You can talk to VG at any time. He's a member of this church. And uh, if you don't get the newsletter, I'm sure he will hunt you down and find you. Or you can talk to Ed. Ed Hong is here. You may have recognized Ed from the video. That's the same Ed there. So he'll sign autographs in the back. Um, and if you do not have a copy of Richard's book, Tortured for Christ, uh, we will give that to you as our gift with a sign-up to the newsletter. So I'll just put these over here. And then we'll see uh, if this technology works. This is the first time I will ever be speaking from an iPad. Usually I have paper. but And now I've got this gadget. There we go, Hebrews 13.3. Hebrews 13.3. I... I like the, I'm going to say, uh, yeah, the King's James Version, mainly because I grew up with this verse. I grew up with this mission. Uh, my parents started the work in Canada. So um, the King's James Version, to me, with Hebrews 13.3, not to slag any other translation, but it just seems more uh, tied to the suffering. Like the, the, it's, To me, it's very visual. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. And them that suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. It's, uh, it's very visual for me, and so I use that uh, translation quite frequently for that particular verse. But when uh, Richard Wormbrandt was ransomed out of communist Romania and began to raise awareness of the sufferings of Christians, at that time it was known in communist bloc countries, Hebrews 13.3 was the verse he decided to build the mission on. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about persecution, and many of you studied, and you will be familiar with those passages. It, it tells us uh, why persecution happens to Christians. It tells us how persecution happens. It tells Christians what our response should be in the face of persecution. But Hebrews 13.3 gives us a clear mandate that we need to be doing something more, much more active. It says, remember, and the title of this message is that while it tells us and instructs us to remember, 
The implications of remembering are much more than just a passive exercise, but really it is a command for us to be proactive in our remembering our persecuted brothers and sisters. It commands you and me to not only remember their suffering of others, but to remember to the degree that we are actually suffering with them. Now, when Richard shared this verse and and when he talked about uh, suffering with persecuted Christians, Western Christians in particular struggled with how to put this verse into practice and how to live it out in the midst of our affluence and our freedom. Those things that the church in the West, in Canada in particular, we celebrated those things, and we should celebrate those things. There's nothing wrong with those things. Uh, But we struggled with how do we live this out? How do we actually suffer with Christians who are suffering around the world? And um, that makes sense, right? Like, how do we, people who are accustomed to our lifestyle in the West, for example, feel the hunger experienced by one who is truly starving? How do we experience the vulnerability of one who is homeless or one who is a migrant, a refugee, or a widow, or an orphan? How do we experience the hopelessness of one who faces a life of slavery, of poverty, of discrimination? Or how do we experience the demoralizing shame of someone who has been violated, mistreated, used, or abused? Now, I say this carefully whenever I speak because I'm always surprised sometimes when I hear people's stories in the West that there is suffering in the West. People have suffered uh, great things. And so I don't want to minimize their suffering and say that some of these things that I just talked about, some of these sufferings are only happening in countries that are not in the West or third world countries. We see evidence of some of these things here. But I would say that typically for most of us, having grown up in Canada these type of sufferings are uncommon to us. But our struggle in trying to comprehend the implications of Hebrews 13.3 in the context for which we live in our daily lives, it doesn't give us the license to ignore the verse or to discard the verse because we don't understand it. So I want to talk specifically just a little moment about general suffering. Now, first of all, we understand that there is suffering that is common to every person. And suffering comes in all kind of degrees and forms. Uh, For example, examples of general suffering would be illness, would be unemployment, poverty, a loss of a loved one, loneliness, etc. We also know that general suffering has levels and degrees to it. So take, for example, we may meet one person who suffers from a cold. There are a number of your people out today with uh, flu, and so they have fevers, and they are uh, hunkering down at home and trying to get well. But we also may have people in our congregation that are suffering from a terminal illness. Maybe it's a cancer. I am uh, aware, maybe some of you are familiar with our mission, that one of our key leaders uh, eight to nine years ago passed away from cancer. And right now, one of my colleagues in the UK who uh, has been to many countries who are serving persecuted Christians, encouraging them in their faith, he is on his deathbed. And if the Lord does not intervene, 
uh, he will be home with the Lord very shortly. And so we see the levels of suffering that are common to us. I know that I suddenly have aches and pains I didn't have when I was a younger person. So we see suffering is, uh, is common to all of us. And, but my point in this, I guess, is that since we can all relate to that type of suffering, then we can, fair, and to a fairly high degree, relate to someone who is suffering those things as well. So, for example, if we have experienced the devastating loss of a loved one, we can right now, at this very moment, share in the sufferings of someone who is going through that loss. If we or you have faced feelings of uncertainty and hopelessness or humiliation because of losing a job, uh, you can readily relate to one who right now is suffering unemployment and all the fear and stress that that brings. And I think that this is part of what Galatians 6 is calling us to do when it says bear each other's burdens. Now, I understand that Galatians 6 points to helping brothers and sisters overcome the burdens of sin and temptation, but I believe that there's a greater implication of Hebrews or Galatians 6 uh, when it talks and applies to general suffering. John Piper puts it this way, We tend to think of burdens as sickness, unemployment, loss of a loved one, loneliness, rejection, etc. And the people who bear them as victims. That is right. And if we are full of Christ, we will be about the business of bearing those burdens. But Paul shows us in verse 1 that burdens include trespasses and those oppressed include culprits. We should probably define a burden then as anything that threatens to crush the joy of our faith, whether a tragedy that threatens to make us doubt God's goodness or a sin that threatens to drag us into guilt and judgment. And so thinking about those things, thinking about the general sufferings and, and, and uh, as it relates also to our persecuted brothers and sisters, uh, two verses in the Galatians 6 passage, passage comes to mind, and that's verse 2, the, the call for us to bear one another's burdens, and then verse 10, that at every opportunity we are to do good for all. And here's why those two verses caught my attention. They remind me that every Christian has been tasked with a mission, and with that mission they have begin, big, been given a message, and these two things, mission and message stem from a motivation. So the Christian's mission is to go into the world and do good works that God has planned in advance for us to do. And we see that throughout scriptures, but in particular, Ephesians 2.10. Now, we don't need to complicate this by trying to figure out what does that mean? What does doing good works mean? Going out, we sometimes think that we have to go out to a foreign country to do good works, but I don't think that's what it means. It calls us to wherever we are within our sphere of influence to reach out, do good works, plan for us in advance to do to our family, for our friends, for our neighbors, for our coworkers. Sure, some of us will be called to go out, uh, get on an airplane or jump on a boat and go to different places in the world to be missionaries and to do good works. But for many of us, that will look like we'll be right here in our community, serving our communities, being his light. So that is the mission that we've been called to. But the Christian also has a message that accompanies the mission, 
And that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to realize that every single person on earth is seeking the answers to the basic questions of how and what life is about. And the answers that they will find, the, the answers they will find will, defined, uh, will define how they live. So they will ask, how did I get here? What is my purpose? What is life all about? How should I rightly live? And it's the gospel, and only the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the answers to these questions that every Christian must be ready to give and must be ready to share the good news. So another way to put it, and we heard that already in the first session, is that every Christian is to be engaged in fulfilling the Great Commission. And we read those words, and Vigi read those words, as he talks about the discipleship program in Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So let's do a quick recap. If you are a Christian, you are a follower, a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus has invited you to come to him in order that you can be equipped by him to go with his message and invite others to come to him who in turn are equipped by him to go out and reach others. That's the, yes. The Christian motivation in all of this can be summed up in the great commandment. And we read that already in the, in the last session as well. And we see that in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, where Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the Christian's motivation is a love for God and a love for his people. And as the love of God grows into a follower of Christ, the outflow of that love is a love for their neighbors. The best way expressed, the best, uh, love is best expressed when we bear the burdens of those who are suffering, when we administer righteous judgment for those who are mistreated. And yes, it means then we also need to step in in love and warn those who have fallen or have been led astray by hollow and deceptive philosophies. And in this life we've been called to, this is the life that we've been called to as followers of Jesus and why the church is so important in the life of every believer because it is together with our brothers and sisters, and with the power of the Holy Spirit that the work of the Lord can be best accomplished in this world. A healthy church represents Christ to their communities. In other words, as we become his hands and feet, sharing the good news of the gospels, communities are transformed and God's glory is revealed. And I think in summing this all up, this is why Hebrews 13.3 is a call for us to more than just remember. And it's why I think Richard Wormbrandt called us to something more.
Richard Wormbrand wanted Hebrews 13.3 to take Western Christians to a deeper level of understanding persecution. Richard was a pastor in Romania. He recognized the importance of the role of the church in community and in society. But he also knew that a church, if it were to, if it worked to fulfill its mission and proclaim its message, that it would be persecuted. He witnessed this in his own country of Romania when the communists took control and sought to destroy all religions that stood counter to communist ideology. Communists were threatened particularly about Christians because the Christians said, no, we serve one Lord, we have one master, we have one God, and you are not he. And he pointed, they would point to the communists and say, Jesus is the head of the church, not the communist government, and therefore we must follow Christ and his teachings. One of the ways that the communists, if you're familiar with Richard's story uh, at all, and, and maybe some of you are, maybe some of aren't, one of the ways that the communists tried to uh, gather all the, the Christian denominations and, and to, to form an alliance with the communist government was to call them all together, and they called it a Congress of the Cults, and uh, Stalin was considered the honorary chairman of this, of this Congress, this calling of all these pastors and leaders. And, to, uh, and Richard and Sabina, Rich Sabina was his wife, uh, they were also invited. They were prominent church leaders at the time. They were invited into this event, and they were shocked that as the event went on, prominent Christian leader, denominational head, denominational leader, leaders in churches, well-known pastors, stood up at a podium and proclaimed allegiance to the communist government, that Christianity and communism could coexist. We were all after the same ideal. Um, and Richard and Sabina stood there shocked. And at one point, Sabina couldn't handle it anymore, and she nudged Richard and said, you need to get up there, take the podium, and wipe the shame off of Jesus' face. And Richard looked at her and said, Sabina, if I do what you ask, you will lose a husband. And Sabina turned to Richard and said, I'd rather lose a husband than to have a coward for a husband. Now, guys, I don't know what you would do would you go home with an angry wife or would you take on the communist government? Richard wisely chose to take on the communist government because although Sabina was short in stature, she was powerful and he didn't want to disappoint her. Richard took to the podium, motioned that he wanted to speak. This was all broadcasted over national radio and he stood up and said, it is to Christ and Christ alone, the church must give its first allegiance. And we cannot bow down to a, a government that is atheistic at the core and denies the existence of God. And it's to Christ we must follow. The woke up the rest of the people. He got a standing ovation. Of course, the mic was cut. And this started the persecution of not only Richard Wormbrandt, but many Christians in Romania who suffered greatly uh, for standing and uh, proclaiming Christ as Savior and Lord.
In this world today, there are followers of Jesus who seek to live out their faith, much like Richard did, much like the Romanian church did, much like Christians and pastors and leaders in other communist countries at that time when Richard started the mission at Focus was on communist countries. But today, just like those people, there are Christians, normal, everyday Christians, you and me type of Christians in their communities trying to live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus trying to engage in the mission that God is calling them to, trying to proclaim this message that God has entrusted to them, all with the motivation of making God known to people that don't know him. And as a result, they suffer persecution. And this phenomenon of anti-Christian persecution did not end with the collapse of the Roman Empire or end with the inquisitions that happened throughout the Dark Ages, Christians still suffer today, and as such, we are called to remember them and share in their suffering. After all, Matthew 5, verse 10 tells us, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, when they persecute you, and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the voice of the martyrs, and we've carried this legacy on from Richard Wormbrandt, our founder, has a clear message and mandate to help Christians in Canada to do more than just remember their persecuted brothers and sisters, because we believe that true remembering means that we not only engage in praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters, but that we help them develop their capacity to reach out in love to all those in their communities that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, even those that persecute them. So Richard Wormbrandt came to the West with this message from persecuted Christians, and he said, this is a message I bring to you from the persecuted church, Don't forget us. Don't abandon us. Don't write us off. Give us the tools that we need, and we will pay the price for using them. And this is the activity that Western Christians were asked to engage in, to remember by not turning a blind eye to their suffering brothers and sisters, but to seek to do good to the church, may help to carry their burdens, by doing good to the household of faith. And at that time, it was in Romania or Russia or China. So that the church would not only survive in the midst of hostility, that it would thrive in the midst of persecution and suffering. And this is what it means for Western Christians to be partakers in the mission and the message of the persecuted church with a pure motivation to love God and to love their neighbors. In fact, Richard Wormbrandt, in settings like this, whenever he spoke, we said, he would say, if you're worried about Christians being persecuted in Romania or communist countries, do not give to our Bible fund. Because if you give to our Bible fund, we will get Bibles into these countries. And if we get Bibles into these countries, Christians like you and me will use these Bibles. And if Christians use these Bibles, they will be persecuted. So if you're worried about them being persecuted, don't give to Bibles. If, however, you listen to their cry 
then give them the tools and share in their suffering. That's what he called us to do. And then he would tell a story to help clarify his point. He would talk about a doctor who was on a, on a, he boarded a train and he was traveling to a certain destination. And midway through the journey, the train derailed. And there was a lot of wreckage. There was smoke. There was confusion. There was chaos. And this doctor, all he could hear were the cries and the moans and the agony of people that were suffering. They were wounded. They were dying. And this doctor was standing in the midst of this debris. And he was okay. He wasn't wounded. And he was frantically searching for his luggage because in his luggage were instruments of healing and tools that he could use to help those that were dying. And he stood there in the midst of the chaos saying, my tools, my tools, if only I had my tools. And just as this doctor felt helpless without his medical instruments, so too did Christians in communist countries feel helpless without the Bible. The Bible was banned. The Bible was burned in these countries. And they felt helpless without the Bible to adequately reach their neighbors. Communism countered and brought in lies and deception, and they, they brought it to schools and, and, and taught it to children. And pastors and Christians in these countries saying, how do we counteract lies if we don't have the truth? And God's word was the truth. Richard Wormbrandt would often say, hear the cries of your brothers and sisters in hostile nations. Get this. They do not ask for escape. They do not ask for safety or an easy life. They only ask for the tools to help them proclaim the gospel. They ask for Bibles. Give them these tools, for they are willing to pay the price for using them. In countries where Christians are persecuted, they still do the same work that Richard did. They still do the same work of going about on God's mission with his message. And they do so at a significant risk because a church that seeks to evangelize is targeted and quite often attacked. You see some statistics there. According to the World Evangelical Alliance, it is estimated that over 100 million Christians in at least 60 countries are denied their fundamental basic human rights solely because of their faith. And this denial of human rights this, uh, is a moving target in terms of definition, and it will look different from country to country or region to region. But persecution can range from ridicule, discrimination, harassment on one end, and swing and intensify to more hostile actions of imprisonment, torture, and death. At our communion time, we talked about the importance of the cross. It was a, a wonderful uh, message someone gave on, on the, the five importances of the cross. We talked about the one loaf, the body of Christ, in which we all have unity, and many Christians in the world today that are persecuted by their persecutors, there is a strategic focus on making Christians feel that they are cut off from the body of Christ. We see this in China. China is, is, the persecution is immense in China again. Not only is there a war against the cross where crosses are being torn down off of buildings and destroyed and communist symbols are being put up, but Christians are becoming under greater scrutiny again and, and, and there is limited access again to 
foreign Christians that seek to come in. Missionaries are being expelled out of China. Over a thousand Korean missionaries have been expelled out of China. And China would say, no, we're not persecutors of the church. In fact, we, we see the value of the church. We see so much value of the church. We need to protect the church. And so we will make it a Chinese church. But we know there's no such thing as a Chinese church. Just there's no such thing as a Canadian church. We are one body. We are the church. And when we get segmented and cut off from the rest of the body, many Christians feel hopeless. We love to talk about the 1040 window. Many mission groups love to talk about the 1040 window. Uh, and you can sort of see it there, highlighted where that would be. And uh, I find it intriguing that in this area, the most unreached peoples are those that have never heard the gospel. Also in this area, justice issues run rampant. There is poverty, homeless, orphans, widows, hungry, so on. So many things happening in these countries. Sex trade. It goes on. And therefore, the 1040 window is the greatest focus of mission activity uh, by many mission agencies. But we also see that in this area, that there is an unprecedented growth of the church through conversions, which indicates that the message is being proclaimed in this region. But we also see that this is an area where the bulk of persecution towards Christians for their religious belief occurs. And this indicates to me that there is a huge spiritual battle going on in this region. But what is really at stake here are the souls of people, people who are created in God's image and need to see the love of God demonstrated by his church and hear the gospel proclaimed through its people. And we err if we lose sight of this in all the other social issues that plague humanity. Brothers and sisters, in the end, when we talk about this stuff, it's not even about persecution, which may sound strange to you coming from someone who works for an organization that speaks a lot about persecution. But let me explain this to you in this way. Brother Andrew, who founded the Mission Open Doors, another agency that works predominantly with Christians who are persecuted, he said this, if you want to change the world, you need to know at least three things. I think there's some people who want to change the world or your little corner of the world. You need to know the facts. So when you go out in mission and have a message, you need to know the facts. And, and so many groups see people running out to try and solve a problem, but they really don't know what the problem is. They don't understand the issues. He said, once you know the facts, you need to have the right strategies. Put right strategies in place. You know, there's a time for mission. There's a time for message. And we need to be thinking carefully about, about how we deploy these things. Let's be strategic. But this is the most important thing that I think Brother Andrew hits on. He said, you need to feel the power of the persecuted church because they are God's means of showing us the way of Christ. Let me say that one more time. You need to feel the power of the persecuted church because they are God's means of showing us the way of Christ. Now listen, 
The power of the persecuted church does not lie in its ability to live out its faith in difficult circumstances, but rather it is found in its ability to rely on a strength that comes only from Christ as he builds his church in this world to radiate his glory regardless of the opposition that it faces. And it is then from this position that we begin to grasp how persecution can be used by God to bring about the very things he'd planned in advance, well in advance of our time, and how through suffering he is glorified. I met her um, when she finished a missions trip, and she looked at me and uh, she said, I'm a North Korean defector woman, old, who in their right mind would ever use me? And she looked at me and smiled and she said, God did. And God is continuing to use her, Mrs. Lee. And there's so many Mrs. Lees out there. Um, in Korea, when, with our underground university project, we were looking for the, the best, the strongest, the youngest people who could be missionaries back into North Korean communities. And they were distracted. They were bothered with other things. And what God gave our office in Korea were the oldest Koreans, North Korean defectors. But they've turned out to be the strongest, most determined, powerful mission force that is going back into North Korean communities proclaiming the gospel. They have a mission and they have a message and they allow and tell Christians that they are not cut off, that we are one body. And so in closing, um, I thought it was good to share with you uh, the story of Mrs. Lee. Uh, but there are so many uh, people that we meet in hostile and restricted nations that are greatly blessed when we take the time to visit them, when we travel them, when we sit with them in the middle of their suffering and just to hear their stories. But to come with them and encourage them and say that there are also, I represent Christians, a church in Canada that prays for persecuted Christians daily. And they are so encouraged and blessed to know that they are part of a much larger family and that they have not been forgotten, they have not been abandoned, that they have not been cut off from the body of Christ, that there are brothers and sisters who are suffering with them. And it gives them the uh, hope and encouragement to endure and to continue to serve Christ. For the persecuted believer to be remembered means that they are not cut off from the body of Christ, but they have a valued place within it. This was the legacy of the Wormbrandt and what he built into the DNA of Voice of the Martyrs. He often said that when we see persecuted Christians, when we see someone suffering, our job is to give them a piece of bread, practical support, practical aid to encourage them in the midst of their suffering, but also the bread of life to encourage them to let them know that they are part of a one body, that they are in this together, and then we can give them the tools that they need, join them in their mission, join them with the message of the gospel, and glorifying God by giving them the tools that they need so that the church can continue to be the church. 
in the midst of hostility and suffering. And as we do those things, as we serve our brothers and sisters, we find that we ourselves then are encouraged and equipped by their testimonies, by their witness, to live for Christ in the middle of our communities here. What does it mean for us to have a mission here in Mississauga, a message that people here in your communities need to hear because people are searching for truth and they are bound by lies. And so the challenge that I would leave with you is to contemplate what does remembering mean for me here? Yes, there's the greater implications of our brothers and sisters who are suffering in countries. They need our prayers. They need the tools that we are able to provide. But what does it mean also to remember here in our spheres of influence, in our communities, how are we remembering our persecuted brothers and sisters? Is it, remember, is it a passive or is it an active remembrance? Does your life reflect both mission and message? And who gets the glory? And how do we keep our motives pure? And so I think these are some of the questions I would like to leave with you today and be happy to answer more of your questions in the back. But I would think that it sounds like uh, VG's Friday night sessions will help answer those questions as we seek to be disciples in your communities. So remember our persecuted brothers and sisters, but don't remember them as victims. Remember them as brothers and sisters who are persevering under difficulty, who want to continue to serve Christ faithfully regardless of what comes their way, and they ask for our partnership in the mission. So pray for them and encourage them as you can. Thank you.